Good morning again. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of James, chapter 4, or as is always the case, the passage is printed in your bulletin, you can follow along here. You know, the Bible requires us uh, to to change um, gears pretty quickly. I mean, one page of the Bible is full of beautiful encouragement, much like that song, and then the very next page of the Bible, it has a very, you know, a challenging word to us, and um, it feels a little disorienting to you that we go from uh, such a sweet song to such a sharp passage. Um, well, I guess that's just the, the nature of God's revelation to us, and let's hear what he has to say, hard, hard words that he has to say to us. <clears throat> What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Hitting on that metaphor of of a war that we talked about in the third song. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. (laughs) That is why the scripture says in Proverbs 3, verse 34, God opposes the proud, but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. (laughs) You know, James is a... Is one intense guy. <laughs> you ever read through uh, the book of James and, and think to yourself that he and I would not make the best buds? <laughs> I like, sometimes feel like James would not like me very much if he was still around today. Uh, he's a prophet, right? He's a, he's a prophet type. And he's sort of switched in this passage from the Proverbs hat to the wisdom hat to the prophet hat. And prophets are hard people to be around. Someone who is extremely confrontational, who challenges the power and hierarchy and social norms of a community or of a society. Um, I don't know about you, but those are not the kind of guys that I just naturally become friends with. And here he's thundering at the church. He says this to several churches. You adulterous people, Grieve, mourn, wail about your quarreling and your worldliness. And you read that and, and if you're, you're like, are things really this bad? Are things 
this bad with me? And even if they are, do you have to use such a sharp tone when you speak to me in this way? And what I think is happening, the danger for you is the same danger for me is that we, we disengage from the Bible's prophetic speech. The way we normally operate as people is if I don't, if I don't like the way you're talking to me, then um, I'm just not going to listen to you. I put up a wall that keeps me from ever hearing you. And the danger when we come to passages like this is we will be repelled by the tone of the passage and fail to receive its substantive message. There is a a tremendously substantive message here. Um, I think this is one of the more insightful passages actually in all of the Bible. There are profound insights into human psychology Human um, motivations and behavior. Uh, who who am I and what do I live for? And this is a passage that goes right to the heart of our communication problems as human beings. And also to the heart of our interpersonal um, struggles or relationship struggles. So um, let's humble ourselves enough to hear it. Verse 1. Let me read it to you out of the King James Version of the Bible, where he asks this, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not from, and here's how they translate it, from your lusts, the lusts that war within you. One of the overall categories the Bible uses to describe what is wrong with us, the phrase that it uses is the lusts of the flesh. Now, today, we associate the word lust almost entirely with its sexual connotations. And so that's why the phrase is really maybe not that useful for us today. Um, But historically, lusts or passions, they were much broader than anything sexual. The lusts of the flesh are any intense life-controlling cravings. Or life-controlling desires that master us. Earlier in the letter, he wrote, you may remember the section, he says, uh, Don't let anybody say that God is tempting me because God does not tempt anybody. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And when lust is, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it gives birth to death. Uh, the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that all of us formerly lived uh, according to the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So this is the category the Bible uses to describe us, um, describe what's wrong with us. Our lusts are, of course, situated in our hearts. And it is from the heart that the, the overflow of the heart is from which the mouth speaks. So to get to the center of our communication problems, we have to understand our heart's desires, which means we have to understand something about our heart's lusts, because because, uh, these life-controlling cravings are are behind every significant word that we speak and, and action we perform. And James adds one more thing. It's behind every significant fight that you were a part of. You can trace all of your conflicts back to this. Why are we fighting right now? Um, We're fighting right now because the lusts of my flesh 
are in conflict with, with yours. Why are we fighting right now? It's due to the fact that something I deeply crave, I'm not getting. I'm not getting from you. I'm not getting from my situation. Um, Nobody actually thinks about their desires in terms of lust. Nobody talks that way. Um, And I don't think I've ever met a couple who was involved in serious conflict who truly thought about their motives and the cravings underlying that conflict. But the reason that we're fighting right now, honey, it's not because of him and it's not because of her. It's because I am not getting what my heart so desperately craves to receive. Now, I just, I love how, it, you know, such a word, it cuts right to the core of things, doesn't it? One of the things James doesn't mention in his letter, but it, it's certainly the case. I guess what makes the whole category a little more challenging for us is that Normally, the object of what I am craving or, or I am desiring, the object of the desire is something good. Um, we're not in a fight because I actually want to murder someone or steal from someone. We're in a fight right now because I desperately crave a loving spouse, financial stability, well-adjusted kids, and you just go through the list. Uh, <laughs> Success on the job, kind parents, a life without traffic jams. The Bible is well aware of the fact that the lusts of the flesh are almost always a good thing. They are a good thing that turn into an insane need. It's X, Y, and Z that I insanely need. And in that respect, it is a lust because it's taken on a, a controlling status. In my heart. About 10 years ago, David Pallison, one of my favorite authors, he's a uh, biblical counseling guru type. Um, he, he did a, a series on the Gospel Coalition website. It was about 15 Q&A sessions that he did. The title of the series was The Lusts of the Flesh. And I'm drawing really heavily upon Pallison um, in the sermon today, he talks a lot about James chapter 4 in, in that section um, or in, in that Q&A. So sometimes the object of our desire is inherently wrong. Uh, but normally, the object of our desire is inherently right. But the problem is that right desire grows um, progressively larger and larger and larger until it has mastered and ruled our hearts. And then after the lust has mastered us, James says, it gives birth to sin. And by that, he means, you know, it gives birth to outwardly sinful behaviors, um, anger and worldliness. And he says back in chapter 3, verse 16, and disorder of every evil thing. Um, but it's always the ruling desire that starts first. I don't know if you think about your, your sins that way, but it's, it's always the lust that's captured your heart. That's where it, where it begins. And only afterward does it grow into this monster and produce you know, outward manifestations of you know, visible sins. There's another word the Bible uses to describe the lust of the flesh, another adjective, and that adjective is deceitful. The lusts of our flesh deceive us because they seem so perfectly reasonable. The lusts of our flesh masquerade in our hearts under the, the title or the category of felt needs. 
uh, or of what I deserve, or what are my expectations? Pallison goes on. In modern language, our sinful cravings often masquerade as perfectly reasonable expectations, or goals, or felt needs, or wishes, demands, longings, drives, drives. Use that word, don't we? And, and so forth. So when people talk about their motives, they never speak in terms of lust and cravings. They always speak in terms of you know, perfectly reasonable felt needs, which obscures the power of what's going on inside of them and what's, what, what's being demanded of inside of them. Does that make sense? I mean, we anesthetize ourselves to our lusts by just by never even calling them that, by allowing them to operate in an entirely different rubric and framework. So how do you know when a desire, a good desire, has turned into a ruling desire? Or in other words, how do you know when you have uh, crossed the line? It's, it's crossed the line. We talked a little bit about this in the book of Hebrews, just the, the previous book I preached on right before um, James, the classic example would be Israel and the wilderness. We remember what Israel does in the wilderness. One of her principal outward manifestations of her sin is she grumbles. She complains about God. Um, why? So you'd say that's a communication issue, right? It, it, it's her tongue at work. Why does she do so? Because they were, they were, craving, they were craving flavor. You know, they wanted the the fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic of Egypt. They craved flavor while at the same time they were eating this boring food. And it became such a ruling desire within them. Um, it became so strong. The monster was, was so large that at the end, um, their hearts had been mastered by something other than the, their Lord and their God. So... How do we know when a good desire has become a, a ruling desire? I, what I would say is this, that you, know, you and I, we can't see our hearts. I can't see my own heart. You can't see your own heart. But what we can always see is the manifestation of our hearts. We can see the evidences of our hearts. We hear our heart in our speech. We see our heart in our conduct. And what we need in a good friendship or in a good counselor is someone who will listen to our words, observe our behaviors, in order to help us reach tentative conclusions about our own hearts. Now, the problem is that we don't usually give anybody that level of access to us. I mean, really, when was the last time any one of your friends challenged you and said that, uh, dude... You've got a lustful craving going on, right? I mean, nobody, we don't give anybody that kind of access to ourselves. But what a good friend is supposed to do, if, if you want to grow in Christ together, is somebody who will help flip on the light switch inside your soul, inside your heart, so that you can see the dark places that already exist. And that's why, that's one of the, the best things that you could do, say, for a couple who is um, in a bad conflict or... Um, you know, friends that are in a, a bad conflict at the moment is, is help them to process things in terms of their cravings. What are you craving? Are you craving vindication? You really, is, that, is that what you're after in this? 
You need to be vindicated. You need to be right. Are you lusting for control? Are you standing upon what I deserve? Or what is it that you think that you deserve and are demanding to receive? Or in James' words, what are you coveting? What is it that you, what do you covet? We're supposed to focus on the what of those questions. And so I guess here's the next point. We're supposed to focus on the what and not so much, in my opinion, on the why. The what, not so much about the why. Here's an important consideration. And you probably already know this about uh, the counseling world. But, you know, many counseling systems are obsessed with locating the reasons for current problems in our distant past. They're all about the why, you know. We always want reasons to explain why am I, why am I this way, um, and that's the way that our, uh, our culture, I mean, how many times have you checked the news this past week to see if there was a b- breakthrough in the Las Vegas massacre? I mean, I found myself checking the news 150 times because I just want to, we want to find out why. I mean, what, was he radicalized? Was he mentally ill? Did he have gambling debts? But that's the way we operate in society. We're desperate to find reasons because reasons will, will supposedly explain everything for us and kind of make it all better. But what I, I think that we overemphasize reasons when it comes to our own hearts, that God doesn't require us to know the reasons why I've got this or that particular craving. He does not ask us to do these deep, introspective, archaeological digs into our past to figure out where our cravings come from. The fact that a particular craving, Paulison goes on, the, the fact that a particular craving I have may have indeed been established in my early childhood. Sure, I'm sure it was. I'm sure it may have been from when I was five or 15. I'm sure it probably was influenced by bad models that I was exposed to or by sinful experiences that, uh, that I, I was being sinned against. But that only describes what happened. That doesn't describe what is happening. So I think we way overemphasize the why We don't need a Freudian evaluation to situate our desires in some early childhood experience of rejection. All right? We don't have to know where our lusts come from. What we have to know is that they are there. We have to have the courage to look at them and to name them and say that they are there. And what will I do to address them? You know, less why, more what, and more will. What will I do about this? And one of the other common psychological models out there uh, says that your desires are just hardwired into you. Um, You are the way that you are in some very fundamental ways, and those cannot be changed for all intents and purposes You shouldn't even try to change them because trying to change your desires is psychologically damaging. Um, Because your your desires, they are are just you and they are morally neutral, which is what another uh, common model says. And sadly, many Christians functionally operate on the assumed basis that this part of me cannot be changed. This part will not be changed. 
And, now friends, that is so wrong. Last Sunday, there was a, a really cool 60 Minutes that they did a segment on the Hubble telescope. Anybody see this one? A few of you did. Wasn't that incredible? So the Hubble telescope... Correct me if I mess up parts of it, but you know the Hubble telescope was, is celebrating its 27th anniversary. It orbits the Earth 300 miles above us, and it's the size of a school bus. You might not have known that when the first uh, images from the Hubble telescope were beamed back to the Earth, they uh, were blurry. You could hardly see anything from them um, because there was some kind of microscopic flaw in the mirror. So what they had to do is they sent an astronaut up on a daring spacewalk. And um, it was kind of like uh, a very, um, I don't know, kind of out of a movie kind of moment where he, there he is, he's standing in front of the telescope and he makes these, these changes and all of a sudden, voila, you get the pictures that now we associate with the Hubble telescope. And I mean, those pictures are, aren't they, they're just simply astounding, if you look at the pictures that come in from Hubble and you say, that cannot be real. That is totally CGI. <laughs> that is computer generated. That, that cannot be real. Radiant, rose-shaped galaxies stretching across deep space. Dramatic, towering clouds of glass. That, no way. So what they did is they, in the 60 Minutes episode, they interviewed several astrophysicists. The first guy, he says, okay, he shows the picture of this bubbling gas formation. He says, so this region of gas and dust is a star nursery. It's churning up new baby stars. But what we've learned with Hubble is not only is it a nursery for stars, but it's also a nursery for baby planetary systems. When I was a kid, this is the astrophysicist speaking, when I was a kid, we only knew of the planets inside of our solar system. But now, we know that most stars actually do have planets. And so we know that there are planets absolutely everywhere. We didn't know that even 30 years ago. But we know that today. They bring in another astrophysicist. Say, what do you work on? He says, okay, I work on supernovas. Supernova is a star that explodes. A supernova is, is like a firework. So you have the explosion, and it's there for just a second. And then it disappears in the sky. So he's, they pull up another image, and this one has you know, an exploding supernova. And he says, you see that star? That star exploded 10 billion years ago. And the light from that firework has been traveling through space for 10 billion years. We were able to create a telescope and open the aperture door of the telescope for just that infinitesimal second while that, the, the light from that explosion is coming through. We open the door just in the nick of time and there we see something 10 billion light years a way that it's exploding like a Roman candle. Is that not cool? <laughs> the, the best part of the whole 60 Minutes episode is we're all familiar with the Big Dipper. Even if you're not an astronomy, astronomy buff, all of us could find the Big Dipper up there. Well, apparently, there's a, spa, a part of the sky just above the Big Dipper that it's, it's entirely blank. It's entirely dark. There's nothing there, just darkness. So that's what they thought. 
the prevailing assumption is it's just nothing but black. But they said, well, why don't we point Hubble at it for just a few days? We'll point it there just to the, I don't know, north of the Big Dipper. If, is that even? <laughs> they point it there and just many, many days they let it, they stare at that one part of the sky and wait for the photons to collect on the detector. And that black spot, we thought there was nothing, there was nothing there at all. And they show the picture. And the picture is just, I mean, it's just, it's just littered with dots of light. And they said, so every single point of light on this picture is an individual galaxy. That black, dark black spot up there, that is 10,000 galaxies. And the latest data, the, the latest data that Hubble has given us is that there's probably more than two trillion galaxies in the universe. And you know, the typical galaxy like the Milky Way would have 100 billion stars in it. So that means the total number of stars in the visible universe is 200 sextillion stars. That is the number two, followed by 23 zeros. There are more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on the planet Earth. And you're going to tell me that he can't change your desires? The God who created all of this, and you're going to tell me that he can't change that? He loves us too much to allow us to be ruled by our lusts. The deepest longing and desires of the human heart can and must be changed. That's what the gospel says. He'll never leave us as we are. 2 Corinthians 5.15, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. God is in, in the business of creating new habitual desires, for that is the central work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so when you, and I don't know that today's going to work, it can be cloudy all day, but when tomorrow the sun is shining and you walk outside and you look up into that golden fireball in the sky, you tell yourself there are 200 sextillions of those in the world, in the universe. Yeah, he has the power to change you. James says there's four, four things or so that we need to do about this. They're very brief. I'll go through them quickly. Number one, of course, we always begin with prayer. We must pray. We must pray recognizing verse two that you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask for the wrong reasons or for the wrong motives. But we must pray and ask um, because we, we have to pray believing he has the power to change us. Do you believe that he has the power to accomplish this thing in you? Do you believe the Holy Spirit who's come to dwell in you is powerful enough to, to change the, the deepest yearnings of your soul? Uh, number two, and we're to remember that he is a jealous God. Verse five, do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? Um, you say, you know, how could God be jealous for little old me? <laughs> Given the size of the universe, why should he care about a little old me? Um, or maybe you'd say that jealousy is just somehow beneath God. He shouldn't be jealous, but um, jealousy is always a product of love, right? Jealousy isn't always a vice. A husband is jealous for his wife. A wife is jealous for her husband. 
Parents are jealous for a child. We, we don't do kids sharing. We, here, you can have mine for a month and I'll take yours. We don't do spouse swapping. No, because jealousy is always a product of love. And if God is God, if he is the, the God that I just described to you, the God of infinite power and might, then he knows there's nothing else in all of creation that could be better for us than for us to have him. For him to be the Lord of our lives and not for these lusts to exercise dominion over us. And so no, he won't tolerate us lying down in the bed with anybody else. He won't be satisfied so long as we are adulterous people, as James says. Thirdly, humble yourself. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If you die to yourself, you end up finding yourself. It's the whole paradoxical. The Christian life is paradoxical. We enter into an upside-down kingdom you know, the, the last are first, the first are last. Um, if you die to your cravings, your natural cravings, then you'll actually end up with far greater cravings. His problem with us is not that we desire too little, but we, we don't desire enough. And he will, we will end up receiving many new passions and desires that are actually worth living for if we die to our old lusts. But the paradox is that those who follow who crave the idol of happiness, end up feeling miserable at the end of their drinking binge. And those who crave to be loved end up experiencing rejection at the hands of the person they hooked up with last night. And those who crave to be significant, and so they spend all their effort on accomplishment, they end up inheriting futility when they necessarily fail. So humble yourself. In verse four, or number four, and remember that he gives more grace. And he says this in verse six. But God gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. There, you know, there's just some passages that you really want to hold on to in the Bible. And I think that verse six is one of those. Stamp those words on your hearts. But he gives us more grace. When you start to doubt that anything's going to change inside of you, he gives us more grace. A grace that is both forgiving and a grace that is curative. A grace that cures our insides, that changes us in the ways that we need um, changing the most. Let me um, ask one difficult question before I conclude, and that is, do all of our desires get changed? Like do all of our, are all the lusts of our flesh, do they all get wiped away in this life? Um, will, do we experience a complete cure in this life? If, um, and I think the answer I would give to that question is, no, we don't get a complete cure, but we do get a substantial one. We do get a substantial cure Um, There are lusts that we will be tempted with and fight against in the war until our last dying breath. But every vital Christian testifies that the instinctive passions and desires of the flesh can be replaced with the new priorities of the spirit. And this internal rewiring, um, it's not instant and it's not complete, but it is genuine and it is progressive 
And it's because God gives us more grace. So finally, brothers and sisters, I'll say this very uh, straightforward to you. Don't listen to those voices which say that your desires are hardwired and that they are unchangeable. Resist the devil, is what James says. Resist the demonic voices out there which say you are this way and are never going to be different. Have the greatest confidence in God's power in the gospel to change the deepest longings of the human heart. For Christ died for all, that those who who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Amen.